We'll open with me and your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. It's been a month, but we're back. I've been a month out of the pulpit, but I'm back. Uh, We'll be in chapter 13, verses 7 through 16 this morning. Uh, I was on the back side of the mountain. The sun's hot on the front side of the mountain. This is the hot seat in the pulpit every Sunday. And uh, it's been a productive and an encouraging month on the back side of the mountain, being productive for your sake. Tackled a few projects that we pray will bear some fruit for our church in the year ahead, including the next series, which will be the book of James. Sound like fun? That's all I'm going to say for now. We'll start that in August. Grateful for Dan Kruver's preaching over the last month, as I know that you are. He is on the other side of the world right now, preaching in Bologna. Is that how you say it? Italy. So be praying for him. He's a good man, a good friend, and a good pastor and preacher here at Heritage. Well, this passage that we come to this morning in Hebrews 13, we're, we're bumping up against the very end of the book. This is the last of three sermons. Uh, the first of the last three sermons, excuse me. And this is that passage with that famous line, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That hung along the front of the church where Christy and I uh, went to church when we were in college up in Chicago and, and we'd I'd stare at that. And you know that sentence just, it stands on its own and it is ever useful and encouraging. But it also has a context and we'll see, we'll see how it fits this morning, among other things. Let's hear God's word this morning. I'll read Hebrews 13 verses 7 through 16. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who, devoted, who were those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Through him, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this is God's word for us this morning. Birds don't belong on my back porch. Uh, I know this. They know this. Uh, that's where they have gone. It is not their natural habitat. It is not a bird sanctuary. It's a bird cage. It's a screened-in porch. Here's the story. Uh, the door to the screened-in porch uh, you know, had a screen, and the screen kind of started peeling off, and I just took it all off and put it on my Saturday list of to-dos. Maybe there will be a sermon illustration about that one later. A lot of them come from Saturday to-dos. So there's no, there's no screen in the door, and you know birds can just fly in and, in and out. So we had one bird in there, and it was going bananas until it found its way out the window. It was a couple weeks ago. It's taking me a while. It's down in the list. Then, more recently, we had a bird and then a second bird in there, and I decided to open the door to give them a really clear way out, and came back a couple hours later, and there were four birds in the... (laughs) So I assume they're drawing their friends. I don't know. They should have different kinds of little tweets and chirps to, to signal, don't come in here. Instead, they were saying, come help me, and they're all helpless in the cage. Uh, observed many unproductive attempts to escape, uh, repeating the same behavior, running up against the same 
screen over and over again. And it amuses me that for all that birds are able to do, they apparently are not equipped to remember how they got into such a small space. I wouldn't try that door. It took a whole day and a half to get them out. I imagined myself putting a box on my head and chasing them out with a sheet. We didn't go quite that far. Our strategy was at night, we would turn the light on outside the, the, the porch and they would, they would fly to the light out the window. I think that is, at the door, I think that is what happened. Uh, I went to bed early last night. I woke up this morning and the birds were gone. Well, humanity is not home in this world. We are not at home outside the garden, outside of Eden. And here's how the story goes. We were in the garden in paradise, perfectly provided for, in perfect fellowship with God. There's nothing between us. There's no shame. None of that. Our relationships were perfect. That first married couple, naked and unashamed. That unashamed, that word that ends chapter 2, that creation story. Wow, that's a, good, that's a good point to make toward the end of that story in that we live in a world that is marked by, by shame. There's no shame in that place, in that time. God gave us one prohibition. He'd given us everything good to eat, but we weren't to eat from one tree and we suspected that he was keeping something from us. And we had no reason to doubt his goodness. But we did doubt his goodness. And so we ate from that tree. And just as he promised, we would die. And we were sent out of the garden. And it's very uncomfortable out here. It's cold out here. It's dark out here. And we don't quite know it. We know it, but we don't quite know it. Like the birds, four of them. The more that got in there, the more chill they got. They're in good company, company like themselves, and they're stuck there together. When there was one, it was freaking out. When there's four, they're relaxed, but they know they're not home, but they can relax about it. They at least have each other out of their natural habitat. Now, maybe that's something like what life is like outside the garden. There's plenty of company out here, and there's reason for encouragement, and we do have the sun God made in the green grass, and it's pretty. The world that he made is beautiful. But aren't there ever reminders inside us and outside us and all around us that we are not home? And we try to get home, we try to make home, buy a nice new car, buy that nice new house, uh, fix up that office like I got to do in the last year. It's kind of like making Eden, getting as close as you can, getting as comfortable as you can here, but it's all a, a reaching and a grasping and even a, a playing pretend. How many unproductive attempts do we make repeating the same desperate actions to find ourselves to a better place, only to find ourselves either literally or metaphorically on the streets with a needle? But the Bible is a story of humanity making our way home. God making a way home for humans, but not the same way we came. See, the birds, I'm trying to get them to go out the same way. I don't want them ripping a hole in my... No creative ways out. Just one way out the way that you came. You should know better. You don't. God did not give that ability to you. I will turn on the light at night, and you will fly through that through that door. They will chase the light, and as soon as they see it, before a second's over, a bird will be gone. We can't go back the way we came. We're not welcome there. The light, the light that would mark that way back home, Genesis chapter 3, it's a flaming sword in the hand of an angel, cherubim. It's a, it's a light that it's a light of judgment. It says you can't come here. You can't come back here. You're not welcome here. And that's not God's doing. It's our doing. He's the Holy One. He's the one who is life in himself. We're the ones who chose death. 
who are corrupted and who are not at home outside the garden, and yet that is actually where we belong. For so much of the terror and trouble out here, outside the garden, is our own making, right? It comes from, it comes from us. We've made it the way that it is. With our own sin, and of course it is a cursed world, cursed of God. And the birds will fly out in a second. Our journey home, which is by another route provided by God, is long, it is quite involved, it is a dangerous journey. Look right here in verse 14. Let us go to him outside the camp, and whatever that means, we'll get there, and bear the reproach he endured. Oh, that doesn't sound good. But be encouraged, for here we have no lasting city. This is not it. But we seek a city that is to come. That's good news. This whole passage is peppered with really, really encouraging news, even as it is written to Christians in the first century who were to bear the reproach of Christ outside the camp. This passage is about that journey. It's about the life of the church, and in it we discover that the life of the church is a life on the road. It is a life in motion. It is a life moving. On the one hand, we have come to the new Jerusalem. We are a worshiping community now. Heaven has dawned on earth in the church who worships the Lord Jesus, wherever his word is preached and believed and praised. And yet we are seeking a city that is to come. And this is the book of Hebrews for us. We are there, and yet we are on our way. That is the consistent refrain. One thing is true, and another thing is true. We are already his, and yet we are waiting to be with him in a perfect fashion, in a world without sin, including, including ours. The church's life is a life on the road, and the church's life on the road is a treacherous and dangerous journey, but it is a journey home, and this morning's passage is a traveler's guide for us. And us is the right word, not just you and you and you, but, but us. Remember your leaders, plural. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For here we have no lasting city. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He wrote to a local church. He wrote to a local church. And he means us as an author and readers, but he means for the readers to read this in the context of their, of their local communion. And so here we have a traveler's guide for, our, for this company of travelers en route to heaven on a treacherous and dangerous journey. Four parts to this traveler's guide. First, church life on this road is a life under leadership. It's a life under leadership. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A plain and a simple word, even a brief, simple description of the responsibility of leaders in the church, in particular in particular those who hold the office of elder or pastor. First, to speak the word of God. Uh, expect that from your leaders. Look for that in the leaders we appoint. They spoke the word of God, and so today the church's leaders speak the word of God. Our authority is circumscribed and defined and directed by the word. And this is why your elders meet to pray and to study together. And it's why we're busy teaching in different, different venues. The church does not appoint uh, as her leaders those who are really great at giving advice or those who are just super likable. Although hopefully all of our elders are approachable. But we have different temperaments. Some of us come off a little less likable on first impression. I don't know how I come off. You can decide. We're all quite different. Just like you all are quite different. God makes us different. That's a good thing. 
but charisma or or a real heady personality or even a real accessible personality that's not it it's men who would speak the word of god but secondly consider the outcome of their way of life that's the second thing Second responsibility of leaders, to offer a pattern, a way of life that can be and would be followed. Follow the pattern of sound words, Paul wrote to Timothy, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted coming to you. Uh, Time and again in the New Testament, Paul would address young pastors concerning the word that they are to teach and preach and the doctrine they are to defend and the life that they are to live. Everything hangs on the two. Uh, Pay careful attention to your life and your doctrine for by so doing you'll save your own soul and that of your hearers. So this author's got it that clean too. Those who spoke the word of God to you Consider the outcome of their way of life. A brief description of the responsibility of leaders and the responsibility of members because he's actually not writing to leaders. He's writing to you or to all of us rather. And so what is our job but to receive the word preached and spoken and to follow that pattern of life to the extent that it accords with the word spoken And that word spoke there is not to be missed. Spoke. You remember from chapter 1, that very important first verse, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In many ways, at many times, he spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He speaks through his son. And through the book here, he quotes the Old Testament and says, the Holy Spirit, present tense, says. The Holy Spirit is speaking now through the word. And right here, we're told that the leaders are speaking the word of God. Putting all that together, God, by means of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us now through the preached word. That's how he can say, now he's spoken to us through his son. It's because he really is speaking to us through his son, by the Holy Spirit, through this preached word. That ought to humble all of us. And what an encouragement that God comes all the way to us. And not just with a written word, but with a word that we we can hear. To the extent that a sermon is True to his truth, it lands on us as God's word for us today. Responsibility of leaders and the responsibility of members. Well, next week we'll have a sermon Jason Reed will preach for us from verses 17 and 18. And we have a command there to obey your leaders. So we'll have a whole sermon devoted at least in part to uh, the matter of leadership. It will build on and pick up where we leave off today. I just want to point out a contrast there. That's obey your leaders here. It's remember your leaders. And I, 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 I don't want to say I didn't like that word, but in studying this at first, I just wasn't the word I would have chose. Like, I don't want to say to you, remember your leaders. What does it mean, remember your leaders? Okay, we'll explore what obeying means, but, but remember, like, remember me. Remember me. Don't forget about me. Uh, remember your other elders and, and leaders. It's just not the word that, that comes out of my mouth when I think about how to encourage and exhort and build us up with respect to the church and, and, and her, her leaders. But, but if we consider the church's context, here is a church that, that under, its, under the pressure of its age may have trouble obeying its, its leaders We may very well assume that these leaders that are spoken of in verse 7 are not the same. Remember your leaders. Past tense, those who spoke the word of God. Ah, there. Even just from a tense. Doesn't that help? These are the former leaders. These are likely those who established this church. 
who preached the word, who have since died or, or moved on to other works, setting them up for what they're to hear later. He's drawing their mind to the faithfulness of former leaders and calling them to remember the word they spoke, not just the word, but those who spoke the word and to consider their outcome, the outcome of their way of life. Outcome. Yeah, you see, now it's just in the past. It may well be that they've passed on, that they've died. So, so now we can consider the outcome of their, not just the way of life, but we can consider the outcome of the way of life as a commendation of the way that they lived. How do they live? By faith. So imitate their faith. Stay in the faith. Stay with Jesus. They stayed with Jesus all the way to the end. And there's a lesson for leaders in here that we have to keep going even when it's hard because we will be followed even after we're gone. I'm still following men that I haven't talked to in many years who pastored me in California. I'm still following a man who's in Missouri, Larry Dyer. I speak to him periodically, pastored me for years. These men who are before me and who brought me up in the scriptures will die and I'll remember their way of life and the outcome of their way of life. And I'll remember those who spoke the word of God to me. That's what was so precious about their impact on me was the word that they opened before me. So let's be about that, leaders. Let's be about opening the Bible. We meet for coffee or meet for lunch, bring a copy of the word of God. Chatting about life is good for a good conversation, but let's, let's see what the Lord has to say, how we might encourage each other, exhort one another. Let's know our Bibles, use our Bibles so that it can be said of us, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. You can preach it right here. You can speak it across the table. Consider the outcome of the way, their way of life. And of course, we're all leading in one respect or another. Dads, remember, you could be spoken of this way, just the same in your own, in your own families. But here he talks about the church's, the church's leaders. Another takeaway for all of us, not just for leaders, is that leadership transitions can be difficult. And sometimes before a leadership transition, there's like a leadership transition sermon. I think there was one in the weeks before I moved here in 2017. That's a good thing to do. But, you know, why don't we just do it along the way? Hopefully I got some 20 years left. Well, just remember this sermon 20 years ago when we're all a whole lot older and a bunch of you are gone. And, uh, you know, he buried you. And um, now it's the rest of us and our kids are gone. And I've been preaching for some 25 years, and we love each other, and we've grown into each other, and, and uh, maybe I move on. Maybe I, maybe I die. We've had a little bit of both in our church. Jim Connolly preached for 25 years and fell over in the parking lot, if you don't know the story. He was in, unconscious for six months and then died. And in that time, Danny Brooks, youth pastor, took up preaching, and by the time Jim Connolly had passed, Danny was just... The clear assignment. They, they appointed him the preaching pastor of this church for some 20, 25 years he preached. And, and then we sent him out. That's a different ending to that relationship. Not the end, but a, a change to Salt Lake City to do church revitalization. 20, 25 years here and he's got a whole stretch left. He takes his 50s and he gives it to church revitalization in a hard place. Left this church in good shape. And I was blessed to come. I did a little research um, this is speaking of those who spoke the word of God to you, so I'm just focusing on those characters, those three, me included here. Uh, Danny Brooks had preached, oh, where's my little number? 1,055 sermons, but uh, that was from 2001 forward. He'd been preaching since the late 90s, so let's just say mm, 1,250. Okay, so this was a leadership transition our church went through not too long ago. You know, Danny's preaching, he's 50, he's, he's been here some 25, 30 years, he's preached some 1,200 sermons. A new guy comes, he's, he's, he's a fresh 36, he's been here no years, <laughs> he doesn't know any of you people, you don't know him, uh, and he's preached one sermon, that was me. So we bonded. We're doing this. We're about six years in. Let's keep going. 
But there's going to come a time when uh, I say goodbye. Lord willing, you know, I'll stay faithful, we'll be faithful, and in His providence, there will come a time when this role transitions. And, and maybe it'll be kind of hard to take the new guy's leadership. And just remember this word here. Remember your leaders. Remember the former leaders. Remember what God did in those years. Well, he does that again. He's about doing that over and over and over again. Thanks for hanging on with, with me. This is a great church. But there are transitions. There have been. We've done those well. And there will be more. But thank God there's a transition. This is very encouraging. There's a transition that we don't have to worry about. We don't have to think about. There's a transition that will never, ever, ever, ever happen. This is very encouraging, very stabilizing, and anchoring, and makes sense out of verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So leaders come and go. Founders of a church pass off the scene. We could pray for a faithful baton handoff and faithful preaching to follow. That's actually not always a guarantee. We pray for that. But Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, on the one hand, don't make too little of leaders in the church. It's kind of a hard, hard era to be a church leader. You know, all the bad ones make the news. Um, I wish... All the rural good ones and the small church good ones made the news. Um, You might have a sunnier perspective on the pastoral vocation. I would appreciate that. So, uh, you know, we don't want to make too little of leadership. Remember your leaders. Obey your leaders. They're a thing. They're really a thing in the church. And they're really to be remembered when they're gone and obeyed and followed in the context of their assignment in the word. Uh, But don't make too much of leaders. That's possible to do too. I I don't think we do that here. At least I don't don't feel that you make too much of me. We keep it that way. Keep it that way. Um, So don't make too little or too much of your leaders. But make much of Jesus, our capital L leader, our chief shepherd, the one yesterday, today, and forever. He's before all of your leaders, before any of the founding generation of this church and its first preacher, the radiance of the invisible God. He is the one who's at the Father's right hand interceding. He's been the means by which any of our public gatherings throughout our church's history have ever been heard or received by God. It's because of Jesus. There are faithful ministers and leaders along the way. But he's the one who's from yesterday and who's ever ready today to intercede for us. Who sympathizes with us today and equips us and helps us today. Leaders help you. Jesus is your great high priest. I'm just another lowercase p priest along with your elders, along with all of you. We're a kingdom of priests. And he's forever. He endures He doesn't pass off the scene. He's to be remembered, but known now. He's to be looked forward to, and we will look forward to him forever, even as we're with him in the new creation. We will get to know him better forever. He is from yesterday, today, and forever. And that's way better than even the very best leaders. It's certainly better than bad leaders or good leaders on bad days. And there's all of that in this age and in this church. No, but Jesus, he's from yesterday, today, and forever. That's what we confessed this morning in in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? That's what we sang about. And that's the context for the diverse and strange teachings that are a problem for this first century church that we're getting to know. We'll get there in a moment. Jesus doesn't change, which should put you on alert as teachings change. Leaders provide guidance for us. They are guides and God has given them to us and every church needs faithful guides who lead with the word of God. But we need more than guidance. If you're on a trip, on a journey, you need more than a map. 
you need strength to get from here to there. And we need strength, and the Lord provides it. So church life is life on the road, a life under leadership, guidance, and now a life around the table for nourishment and strength. We move to verses 9 and 10. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Fathers, make sure that your families eat together. A meal together goes a long way on life's hard road to strengthen the body and the soul. And your kids need strong bodies, but they can eat alone, but they need strong spirits, and your dinner table is going to go a long way for that. Well, for us, the church, on the road to heaven, there are many dangers, toils, and snares. And God will faithfully lead us home, and he does so by means of nourish, nourishment. And we have a family meal that we share. What is this food? Let's examine this little set of verses here. We have a contrast of two meals. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Okay, that's, that's one part of the contrast. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So, so whatever these diverse and strange teachings are, they are set in contrast to grace. The diverse and strange teachings may lead us away. There may be something tempting about them and, and appealing about them, but they cannot strengthen us because they do not provide us with the grace that we need for this journey. What are these diverse and strange teachings? Not by foods, he says, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Instead, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So, here's what's going on. It's shocking what he's saying to his readers. Even, even offensive in the best sense. Could be for those who are drifting. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He's not talking about like the candy aisle. Uh, I've had many foods that have not benefited me. Oh, but they did benefit me. There just wasn't any nutritional benefit for me. Not by foods which have not benefited. He's talking about the food laws under the Old Covenant. Remember all those chapters on food laws and Leviticus? The whole, the, your whole life as an ancient Israelite had prescriptions by God for how to, what to wear and what to eat. And, and some of them seem a bit obscure, but the big takeaway is that God's in all of life. And he's at your dinner table and he deserves obedience in all of life. And and there were always opportunities in very specific ways to obey the Lord. And you belong to the Lord. And he also used those laws to provide a, a distinction between his people as a nation and, and those outside. They're not relevant anymore. They weren't all tied to creation. And so, and so they're not part of God's moral universe. But they were a part of Israel's, Israel's life. And that old covenant is obsolete. That's what the author has said. Which would be super offensive to them. To set those food laws and the meals they shared in contrast with grace and being strengthened because your daily meals in an Israelite home, you would think of it as strengthening you by grace. Joy around the meal table, that was strengthening your spirit for what God would have for you. You would bless God's name, you would give thanks to God for the food, you would ask from God what you needed. It was a holy spiritual act and God prescribed it. So what is he talking about? diverse and strange teachings. It's in the Bible. What he's saying is, all those laws are obsolete. It's not just shocking that he's saying that are diverse and strange teachings. It's shockingly good news for 
those teachings and those commands concerning food in, in your everyday meals as an Israelite pointed to that fellowship meal through the peace offering in Jerusalem that the priests would offer and you'd have some and some would be offered to God. But even that pointed to a day when we would be in perfect fellowship with God in his presence. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Open up the gates, the ancient doors, the king of glory is here. Well, the king of glory has come. See, Jesus has come. Open up the gates back to Eden. Open up the gates to heaven. Open up the gates to God's throne room. The king is here and he's going in. Now, what about you and me? Well, he's done something so that we can go with him. He's made a way back. Those food laws reminded you that God was feeding you and pointed you to those meals in Jerusalem, those festivals where you would eat in fellowship with God and your, your people. But even those pointed to the day when there would be no sin and nothing between you and God and no shame and no barrier. Jesus has come and removed the barrier. So take up and eat. Those teachings back there, they're diverse and strange. So Christian hero, when you read Leviticus, if it seems diverse and strange, good, good, good. No, they pointed to something that has arrived in Jesus. Shockingly good news. I thought of an illustration. It's like VHS. How strange is VHS when we've got streaming on the internet? And then I thought, ooh, ooh, no, it's not like that. It's like going from some type of media like VHS and then entering the real thing. We've entered the real thing. We're no longer watching a motion picture of it in the Old Testament laws. That's what that was. They were even kind of play acting this motion picture, this play, prefiguring the day when they would eat with God. No, we're in it right now. Jesus gives us the Lord's table, bread and cup, bread and wine, sign of fellowship. Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine, a sign of fellowship in the covenant that they shared. It's interesting. This author does not bring up the Lord's table. I was originally thinking, I bet it's underneath here. Food, strengthened by grace. It's not disconnected. It's interesting that when he did bring up Melchizedek earlier in the book, he didn't say anything about that fellowship meal that they shared bread and wine. I think it's got to be this church really had a hang-up about trying to materialize their faith to make it something you could touch and taste and feel and drink. He's not touching the Lord's Supper here. The Lord's Supper is a sign that points to the real thing, the grace of God to the sinner through Jesus. By faith. Imitate their faith. Don't be led away by strange and diverse teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Your heart needs the grace of God. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Ouch. We have an altar from which those up at the tent who serve at the tent have no right to eat. You and I don't just have a priest who can offer a meal and eat on our behalf. We are priests who, who share together in the meal that is Christ, the bread of life, and share in perfect fellowship with, with God. A shocking, provocative word for his readers and shockingly good news for us. But don't think that this gets us out of the temptation to leave off this meal, which is, which is Jesus. Because we'll get to our reproach here in a moment. Where is this table? Where is this table? There's a contrast between the foods which don't benefit you and then the grace which does, which strengthens you for this journey where is the table? Verse 11. We move now to a life outside the camp. That's where this journey takes place. It's an outside hike. 
for those bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. We've been told by this author to go into where God is to enter his rest, to enter into fellowship and into his presence through Jesus. Now we are told to go out to where Jesus is. This is a matter of plainly managing our expectations. Full disclosure, this is a hard, difficult road. And some of us know that firsthand right now. We are promised by Jesus, friends, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Jews demand signs, Paul wrote, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, because it undoes all this food law stuff that they like so much. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus was about full disclosure. Some of you have grown up in the church, and that's very good. Give thanks to God for that. There will come moments when you have to decide to stay with Jesus. And when you stay, rather than taking a path of least resistance or an easy way out, That itself is an evidence that you belong to him. Others have found yourself in the church, having lived in the world, having been wholeheartedly of the world, and gave it up by God's grace to enter Christ by faith and his people. And praise God for that. But how, whatever your course is, the promise is, that those who name Christ, who, who acknowledge his name on their lips, will be persecuted. So if it has not happened yet, it will happen according to Jesus. This whole outside the camp thing. The bodies of the animals for sin offerings that were offered were burned outside the camp. The reason they were burned outside was to symbolize that God's judgment had been diverted from his people who were inside the camp to the animals who are now outside the camp. And they're burned so that they go away, which is to say God has diverted his judgment against our sin outside the camp and our sins are burned away. They're consumed by his judgment. Inside the camp, You can draw near to God because your sins have been taken outside the camp. You see? We're not welcome where God is unless he does something, unless he takes our sins away, unless he takes them outside the camp. That's what he means here. Let us go to him outside the camp. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Judgment fell on the Son of God outside the camp. A clear indication that Jesus was fulfilling the purpose of those sin offerings all along. He is for us hope for freedom from guilt and shame and from sin. And if he has done that for us, how can we not identify with him, acknowledge him with our lips, associate with him say he's my salvation let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured not paying for our own sin but associating with the only one who can and who has 
who is Jesus. And we can do that because this isn't a lasting city anyways. We have no lasting city here, but we seek a city that is to come. Shockingly, good news. There's a little more going on here, I think. This outside-the-camp imagery is tied to those sin offerings that were sacrificed and then burned outside the camp. But in the book of Exodus, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God as a golden calf is being made at the base of the mountain. And when he gets down there, he has to pitch his tent outside the Israel's camp in order to meet with God. And why? Because the camp was defiled. That he'd meet with God outside the camp. And if this is true, then F.F. Bruce is right when he writes this. Now, in the person of Jesus, God has again been rejected in the camp. His presence was therefore to be enjoyed outside the camp where Jesus was. And everyone who sought him must go out and approach him through Jesus. In this context, the camp stands for the established fellowship and ordinances of Judaism. To abandon them with all their sacred associations inherited from remote antiquity was a hard thing. It's hard to leave our old lives and ways. But it was a necessary thing. What was formerly sacred was now unhallowed because Jesus had been expelled from it. What was formerly unhallowed was now sacred Because Jesus was there. The cross doesn't look like a holy place. Like the place to meet God. A bloodied, battered, dying, crucified man. But a cross is how we come to God. And the church does not always look as pretty as she dresses up on Sunday. It's okay to dress up. The church is a despised people. In many places of the world, on the run. But she has the gospel of God's grace. And she is strengthened by God's grace. And it is through the preached word from the local church that God can be known and found outside the camp. What is our response, our only proper response to this grace of God to us through Jesus who went there for us? It brings us to our fourth part of these travel plans. Church life on the road is a life under leadership. It's a life around the table. It's a life outside the camp. And it's a life offered up to heaven. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Two kinds of sacrifices we make. Here's a little application at the end of the sermon sitting right there on the page. Make, brothers and sisters, a sacrifice of praise to God. Wake up in the morning, come to church on Sunday morning to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. We don't offer animals anymore. The Son of God has been offered in our place. There's no sacrifice given for sins. This is more like that burnt offering, if you remember, from Leviticus. That offering that was offered up and totally consumed Picturing the total consumption of our lives to God, he deserves all of it. And so we offer up our whole lives in worship to God, our whole lives for his praise. And what is the sound of that? But the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Give yourselves to the worship of our triune God. The second sacrifice That's one we make in the context of our relationship. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What an encouraging word. Church work can be hard. Dare I say, sacrificial. It can, or even dare I say this, it can sometimes feel like you're being sacrificed. You ever feel like you're being sacrificed sometimes? (laughs) Offer yourselves up as a sacrifice to God and to your brothers and sisters. Don't forget to do good. Do good. Share what you have. Show up with a meal. Get out the checkbook. 
Help as you have means with those who have need. Give yourself and your time and your attention and your prayers to each other. And when that's hard, remember, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He sees and he hears it all. And it's not written on a board out there in the lobby. Well, I had a family member who grew up in a church where there's a building program in the lobby. There was all the people's names with how much they'd given. How about that? We'll never do that. It wasn't, it wasn't a gospel preaching church. It was an apostate church. Well, you know, that's what you end up doing. And we don't need to write these things down and incentivize them with like public shaming or reward. Well, the reward is that God is pleased to look on our sacrifices and so we can freely and happily make them with one another. Friends, it's a blessing to be on this journey with you. To draw near to the throne of grace with you and to be strengthened by grace every day and every Lord's day with you for this journey on the way home. He'll get us there. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this word, this great word of encouragement to us. Thank you for inscripturating these words to this first church. And we know that it's your Holy Spirit's words to us this morning. And to the extent that they're faithfully preached, we receive it as your word to us today. Would you strengthen us by your grace to go outside the camp, not to be embarrassed about our Lord? Not to be embarrassed to say I'm a Christian in the academy, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods. Oh, we should be shrewd, but Father, make us bold, unashamed. And would you receive our sacrifice of praise to you? And would you strengthen us to sacrifice in our relationship with one another so that we might display your grace in love one for another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.